This presentation is from Design Research 2020, Day 2. Our next presenter is Kelly Henderson, and I have to say, um, Kelly's going to be talking to us about bringing a public health lens to design research. Um, I'll just take a moment to just do a shout out to anyone working in the public health sector at the moment. You are absolute heroes. The wave of issues that we are dealing with in our public health system in Australia at the moment um, is only just beginning. I know a lot of people are just getting prepared to deal with the scale of what's coming um, as the coronavirus starts to flow through, the infection rate increases, uh, the number of cases hitting our ICUs um, increases. And I, I, I really am thankful that we have such a dedicated group of people in our public sector, in our public health system, doing what they can day and night um, to keep us healthy and safe. So we have Kelly. Hello, thank you for joining us. All right, thank you very much. Apologies again for the delay. Um, and thank you for that introduction. Um, I also wanted to do a major shout out to um, yourself and Annabelle and everybody that's been involved in putting this conference together, running through all sorts of hoops and being really great communicators. So thank you as you navigated this very complex uh, situation that we're all um, working through. Um, so yes, I'm a public health person and I am amazed by what's been um, we've been going on the ground with different public health systems around the world to really uh, try and address this um, major pandemic um, and hope that we can all kind of work together in doing that from every, where everybody is. So I'll just get started though. Um, my focus of this talk is called uh, bringing a public health lens to design research. And um, I thought I'd give you a little bit about my back information about my background and then the purpose of this talk. Uh, so I have a background in health psychology and public health. Um, and one of the key lenses I use to uh, understand problems and design solutions is a result of my training in public health. Uh, I was drawn to the public health field for a variety of reasons. Um, it has a number of tools and methods aimed at learning about and addressing um, really complex challenges. It has a big focus on having community participation as part of that effort and its commitment to social justice and health equity. Um, my career path has spanned so many different types of um, health and design challenges, whether that be children's health, reproductive health, food systems, um, digital health tools for people with chronic illnesses. And throughout my time and working on these different design challenges, um, I've been really grateful uh, for the foundation and background I have in public health because it's been a really driving force as far as how I approach my work in design research. Um, right now, um, I most recently was working in digital health and a couple months ago I moved to New Zealand um, and looking for opportunities here. Um, got very excited about some of the work I've been seeing in New Zealand and Australia when it comes to doing that participatory design work. Um, things are changing as we speak and I might be headed back to the United States quite soon. So we will see, um, but grateful to at least uh, meet you all uh, virtually for the time being. And hopefully we'll get to meet you um, in person in a future event. Uh, so for this talk, So to get started, just a very quick um, overview of the field of public health. Um, oops. Okay. Um, the field of public health. Um, so public health practice can be viewed as an approach for maintaining and improving the health of populations. It's based on the principles of social justice, attention to human rights and equity, evidence-informed policy and practice, and addressing underlying determinants of health. 
And then the image on the right here is um, from the Canadian Public Health Association. I think it does a nice job of highlighting some of the core elements of public health. So from designing different health programs, evaluating them, building up an evidence, thinking about risk assessment and developing different policies. Um, so that's a really quick baseline understanding of the lens in which public health is approaching understanding and solving complex problems. The field of public health is really vast. I think you all, we're all kind of getting a taste of today. Um, anybody from a first responder uh, to people doing epide epidemiology work, um, public health nurses and uh, physicians, um, people who do occupational safety type of work as well. So such a variety of different um, areas you could be working with in public health. Uh, for the purposes of this talk, I'm gonna be focusing exclusively on areas where I spend a lot of my time in public health, and that's around social and environmental determinants of health um, and community-based participatory research methods. So I'm gonna spend a few minutes talking about uh, four public health tools and then uh, their application to design research. The first tool is uh, social and environmental determinants of health. And those are conditions of daily life which individuals are born, grow, live, work, and age. Um, I listed a couple of examples here. So whether that's employment opportunities, wages or benefit potential packages, um, social cultural norms, whether they've been exposed to crime, um, violence, experience discrimination, um, and then thinking about their exposure to different types of air quality and water quality, just to name a few. I think the uh, current events that are happening today are really highlighting um, just the extreme different varieties of different social determinants of health that people um, have in their lives. And unfortunately, it's really revealing that to a really great extent. Um, I did want to talk about this one because I think it's really helpful for um, better thinking about people's health beyond simply their individual biology and their individual health behaviors. So it really takes it to another um, level of thinking about what shapes an individual's health. Um, and the next framework I want to talk about, or uh, tool framework also, is the social ecological model. And it builds off the previous um, framework I was discussing. So the social ecological model conceptualizes individuals as embedded within larger social systems as well as helping to describe the interactive characteristics of individuals and environments that can cause specific health framework. And it helps in understanding how the social and environmental determinants of health that I was just speaking about, um, how those work to shape and influence people's health. Um, it also offers a really valuable way of kind of mapping out potential interventions that might be promising to address um, particular health behaviors or, um, or leading or excuse me or influencing health outcomes. So in the um, image here is an adaptation of the social ecological model that's focused on health promotion interventions. On the far left you see the intrapersonal um, level and those are characteristics of the individual. So their knowledge, their attitudes, their behavior. Um, and then the next level is the interpersonal processes and primary groups, um, these are um, people's social networks. So whether it's their family, their friends, um, the people they live with in their community, um, their coworkers, all those different variety of social connections they have. The, the next is the uh, institutional factors. So um, these are groups that are really regulating and providing rules for different things to operate in, in broader communities. The following uh, level is the community factors. And this is an interesting one because it's the relationships between organizations and institu institutions. Mapping out at the kind of broader level. 
And then the last is uh, public policy. So whether it's local, state, or national in place. And I wanna take a moment to talk a little bit more about this tool and give an example. Um, so I was reading a paper to kind of think of a way to explain this and what it's gonna look like. And this paper was focused on um, this, using the social ecological model to describe the determinants of whether a person gets a flu vaccine. Um, this paper was particularly looking at um, what people's decisions look like across the different levels during the H1N1 discussed here. Um, so you can see that um, across the different levels, there are a variety of factors influencing people's decisions. The researchers surveyed a large representative sample um, of adults and discovered that people's decisions to get influenza a vaccine is not is based really beyond the interpersonal level um, from some some perception of risk and actually really across every single level helped um, make help uh, excuse me influence people's decision to um, conducted looking across these different levels. Um, so whether it's, in this case, it was looking at potentially the influence of people, their social network, thinking about what the healthcare provider is sharing with them, um, what their risk, perceived risk is in the community, as well as um, what the broader policy level looked like, whether they had um, favorable access to get the vaccine. Um, I really think it does highlight, like I mentioned, that targeting multiple levels is a really critical part of any type of intervention. And um, so just wanted a quick example of that and included the link if you want to read more about that. Um, so next, I wanted to now take those two tools and talk a little bit about how that could be applied to design research. So using both the social and environmental determinants of health framework and the social ecological model helps you to really zoom out and see design problems from a broader system level perspective. I think this lens really helps push beyond primary conceptualizing user experience as individual attributes such as knowledge, attitudes, beliefs, um, and seeing users as embedded within larger social and environmental systems, as well as helping to really identify a wider range of possibilities for design solutions. So I'm gonna talk about a couple of examples. Uh, the first one's on the left, um, it's about redlining. Um, so I'm not sure if people are familiar with that, I'm gonna talk a little bit about that. Um, redlining is the denial of services or the refusal to grant loans or insurance to certain neighborhoods based on racial and socioeconomic um, discrimination. Um, in, the, in, uh, in the 1930s in the US, the Homeowners Loan Corporation was created uh, to aid in uh, the housing market during the Great Depression. And they created uh, residential security maps, which were called redlining. Um, and they assigned different grades to different neighborhoods, A through D, to kind of describe how desirable they would be for uh, doing investment. Um, so black migrant and low-income neighborhoods were often given grades of C or D, and this really eliminated their access to mortgage, mortgage, excuse me, mortgage insurance or credit for decades. The map on the left here is from a project called Redlining Louisville, the History of Race, Class, and Real Estate, which looks at these discriminatory lending practices in the 1930s and the impact they've had in the Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky um, region to this day. Um, in preparing for a community-based project I was working on in that area, I did secondary research and really used this tool as a really valuable um, way of learning about the area, as well as kind of the history of structural racism um, and its lasting impacts as I was exploring uh, people's experience managing chronic respiratory diseases um, in that area. Um, having that background understanding really helped me interpret the interview findings and the uh, surveys that were being conducted. 
with a much greater appreciation for the social and environmental barriers um, that some groups were experiencing that impacted their ability to take care of their health in the day-to-day. really a reference for organizations that offer support related to um, addressing some of the challenging housing conditions that people were living in. So a lot of people were exposed to mold and pests in their homes which exacerbate their symptoms. So making sure that there was additional resources people could act on given um, what we see across these different areas. The next example is on transportation issues. So across many projects I've been a part of, um, learning from patients with a variety of different conditions, Issues with transportation seem to really be a key thing that can come up when it comes to um, seeing their doctor or accessing medication. So whether that's due to um, limited and reliable public transportation, um, challenges when it comes to being reliant on a family member uh, for access to a car and ways to get around, or paying for parking and having to walk from the parking lot to the, um, to the clinic. All these different variables really can have a pretty serious impact on people's ability to access their um, healthcare system. So I wanted to mention this partially because I just think that um, transportation can be this such a substantial barrier that if it's overlooked or not accounted for when designing particular products or services, you can really potentially miss vulnerable or marginalized subset of your user population. Um, ideas I've worked with with different groups around um, trying to account for this really um, explicitly by thinking about putting in your design research budget a transportation assistance for participants, um, particularly if it's the research being conducted outside of their home, um, as well as including as part of the potential incentives someone could access after participating um, could include potentially a local transit card if that's something of value to them. So really putting that as part of the research uh, process. The last uh, concept is around um, social isolation and a kind of a deep feeling of isolation among a lot of the elderly patients I've interviewed over the years. Um, I've learned how, uh, uh, how this could potentially be some of the most challenging things that people are up against in their, in their daily lives. And so it's really highlighted to me when designing services for um, older populations, it's really a really important idea to determine the extent to which social uh, this is a social challenge for them, really what it looks like in their context and ensure that this barrier is really accounted for in any design decisions that you're um, working on developing. Now I'm gonna move to the, another tool within public health. Um, and these are participatory research methods. Um, so um, I'm gonna speak about community-based participatory research methods in particular. Um, and community-based participatory research is a research approach that focuses on social, structural, and physical environmental in, um, um, inequality through sharing findings and really recognizing um, the people experiencing the problem as the real source of um, ex expertise in the process. Um, I actually want to do a shout out to Kelly Ann earlier. I thought that was a nice presentation really highlighting um, how valuable getting local voice um, sorry, voices from the community is in that process. Um, so the two methods I'm gonna speak are, about are digital storytelling and photo voice. So digital storytelling is an arts-based research method where people create five minute, three to five minute videos that include a variety of multi, um, multimedia materials, such as photos, participant voices, drawings, and music. Um, and a typical um, kind of digital story workshop will have a couple components, one, a story circle where people are beginning to share what stories they think they're gonna um, create a short video about. 
Then there's the script writing and revising, followed up with when they pull all the different multi multimedia materials together and create uh, the short video. And the last part is the story screening where they're able to short share what they've developed. Uh, the other method is also an arts-based research method. It's PhotoVoice. It really um, puts cameras into participants' hands to help them document, reflect upon, and communicate opportunities or concerns with this larger push to, um, of having it really support broader social change. So in this case, um, working with a different group, sharing, them, sharing with them kind of a broader prompt around what questions they're trying to answer by taking photos, uh, then taking the photos, um, coming back together, discussing the photos, and then the last part is around doing an exhibit and helping have a larger community conversation about um, the findings from these photos. So um, with the application to design research, I really think that using participatory art and visually based research methods can really help you zoom in and get a more nuanced understanding of an individual's lived experience or how potentially they're using a product or service. Um, so not only do these methods really give you potentially more kind of insight into their lived experience, they were specifically designed to have this really tangible outcome that not only the participants really get to benefit from, but also that they can be screened, exhibited, and showcased, um, really trying to make it even a more engaging way to get other stakeholders on board and learning about um, these different users and their experience. Um, so I wanted to share two quick examples. Uh, the first one is on the left, and it's a digital, uh, digital storytelling project called Go Hoven. Um, it used digital storytelling as a tool for better understanding experiences of um, young people in a few different Central American countries um, as it relates to their experience accessing reproductive care. Um, and there's, each of the stories really high, highlighted a variety of complex cultural barriers um, people experience, as well as the emotional burden that they've faced in, in trying to access care. Um, we're used to help inform a conversation making effort that would focus on trying to make the contraceptives more accessible to minors. And then uh, the image on the right is from a photo voice project um, that the Veterans Affairs Health System in the United States um, was using both as a kind of exploratory research as well as a little bit of a kind of early stage evaluation of a project they had kind of just begun. Um, so the VA healthcare system um, traditionally focuses on very disease problem-based care, and they were working on trying to transition to being more patient-centered in their care. Um, and part of that was trying to better understand what, um, what patients were looking for and what their idea of what patient care meant. Um, as well as to kind of assess some of the initial initiatives that they had put in place to try and be patient-centered. So um, they asked um, a group of uh, patients to go out and help explain to them, uh, use, excuse me, use cameras to help to showcase what it means to them to be patient-centered, to what extent that the VA system is currently able to do that. The photo here is um, from someone who took this photo to really show that having this bench close by an elevator was particularly helpful for them, um, helping them make sure that they could take a rest in between getting to different floors as it takes a while for the elevator to get there. Um, one of the big learnings was just how having, uh, the last tool I'm going to speak about is um, ethical decision making. Um, so there are a number of public health frameworks aimed at supporting ethical decision-making um, when it comes to evaluating different programs, interventions, or policies. Um, and they, they help both set ethical boundaries as well as ethical foundation for public health. 
Um, so the one I'm going to speak about is the design, uh, excuse me, is the decision-making triangle, as you can see on the right. And it consists of the top 10 ethical principles, evidence, theory, and is designed to assess possible improvement actions as, as well as compare potential actions. And I think one of the key things about this is it really tries to emphasize the expli explicit application of a particular set of ethical principles. Um, so then for this last one, I wanted to talk about how it could be applied um, to the design to design research. So using an ethical frameworks and lessons from past research in public health um, can be important reminders to keep ethical principles top of mind and keep them in focus, excuse me, keep them in focus our decision, as decisions are made throughout the design research process. I do think this lens really encourages um, decisions, or, excuse me, decisions to be guided by ethics kind of front and center. Um, and I'm gonna talk about a couple examples of uh, what that can look like or when it doesn't work. Um, so I also wanted to mention before going to the examples that uh, the public health lens does also offer really valuable lessons for design research and what not to do from an ethical standpoint, unfortunately. Um, there are a number of public health research projects that have been done and provide these reminders of how critical it is to establish um, different ethical principles and how to kind of actually live up to them. Um, this resulted in the public health world in the Belmont report, which really outlines a couple key um, ethical principles that human subject and behavioral research um, has to um, be held accountable to when they do their work. I do think that establishing a uniform set of design research um, ethical guidelines would be really valuable uh, for this field to really ensure that there's a more uniform and universal ethical lens that's applied across the projects that we're all working on. So for a couple of the examples, um, the first one, some of you might have um, heard about this, but uh, last summer, a story broke about how a number of smartwatch devices and fitness trackers had a new feature, had a new feature for monitoring heart rate um, that either did not work or was significantly less accurate for people of color. Um, these devices used a green light, which is simpler and cheaper, cheaper than an infrared light, um, and as a result, uh, did not work as well on dark skin tones to detect heart rate. Um, I thought there was an interesting device to work, um, and it did not. And her partner, who is, uh, is white, immediately had the tool work, work for them. Um, she described it as, you know, it's, it's not an issue of where I'm placing it on my wrist, the tightness, it's not any issue with my blood flow, it's um, issues with my dark skin. So she really tried to call on the company to provide a product that is inclusive for all skin tones. And I think it really, this example raises a number of important questions um, and it makes me wonder a bit about what the recruitment process looked like for designing this new device. Um, who was included in this phase? Who had been ex excluded? And how did they make decisions about moving forward, um, potentially knowing that um, this tool is not gonna be as, as valuable for certain groups? It makes me also wonder, um, what if one of the design research principles they were operating under was supporting inclusivity or supporting diversity or any variable that really would have kind of caught this early on? Um, how could this have turned out differently? Um, so I think it really does bring up another question of how valuable and important it is to think about having um, a representative sample um, when you're doing your research. The other, uh, the second example I wanted to speak to is um, in the fieldwork process. So uh, 10 years ago, I was involved in a public health research project based in South Africa. 
that aim to better understand the lives and experiences of teenagers who cared for a parent with HIV or TB. Uh, the research involved doing in-home comprehensive interviews to learn about their lived experience. And on many instances, instances uh, we learned about teens who experienced significant trauma um, from abuse to rape, and they were struggling um, with their mental health. Um, it was really clear that we had the responsibility to help out with the high-need high research participants, um, something that was beyond the scope of the research project, but critically important in making sure we were taking a role in preventing harm for the participants. The team decided to develop a social service referral system in order to connect those participants in current high-risk situations with local uh, social services. Uh, I thought this was a kind of a, a good example in um, reminder of doing ongoing ethical checks during your field work, as well as preparing additional resources for participants to prevent, reduce, limit harm as much as possible. The last example is around design um, recommendations. And across the variety of projects I've been a part of over the years, I've observed how important it is to have your, your team's ethical principles well-established as criteria for assessing a number of possible design recommendations that come out of the research. Um, I think that there can be a number of constraints that come into play when design recommendations are presented to a broader stakeholder group, um, budget, capacity, other types of priorities. So ensuring that to stakeholders meeting that meet specific ethical uh, standards is particularly important. Um, so I think I got into some questions to keep in mind when thinking about possible assessing different possible design recommendations. So I just uh, jotted down a couple, but uh, to what extent are all users benefiting from this design, this design change, this design direction? Uh, what user population does not benefit? Who's getting left behind? Um, and then to what extent does this design empower users, particularly if that's one of the um, ethical principles that you're do. I think this exercise um, has been um, important in work that I've done supporting projects and services digital and non-digital experience, um, in particular for um, those users that don't have access to technology um, and, th and those that do. So I think it also helps um, make you think about decisions that you're making um, in a really important way, and particularly when it comes to, like I mentioned, the, the digital divide and not Wanted to of what we talked about here, pivot in ways of seeing, uh, zoomed out from different angles, zoom really closely in, keep being firmly focused, so you can get a more comprehensive, nuanced understanding of the users who you serve and their experiences um, in order to inform the design research plans, the process, and the outcomes. Uh, the public health lens offers design research kind of a new set of tools and frameworks to root your design research practice in social justice also offers opportunities to explore solutions that acknowledge, account for, and potentially target various social systems in which your users are embedded. The, um, also offers methods that support creative expression um, and empowerment among research participants, as well as helpful examples and important reminders of the critical role of ethics in decision-making. Um, so whatever type of design research work you're focused on, uh, you have the opportunity to bring a public health lens into your work from the early stages of project scoping, thinking about recruitment plans and how you're sharing your findings. Um, I'm really grateful um, that I'm able to take my training in public health and bring it to, with me every day to the design research that I do. 
Um, so I know this was quite quick, um, but I do hope that it's been a helpful little look at a few ways you can bring public, a public health lens to the work that you do today. Oh, and then, thank you. Yep. Thank you very much, Kelly, that was great. I have um, a, a question for you, if, um, if you can. You've talked about the, the research methods to generate um, the, the data uh, from that public health perspective. Is there anything differently you would subsequently do in terms of analysing or making sense of what you've been hearing and seeing? Hmm. Um, that's a great question. I think it comes down to a couple of the community-based research methods that I spoke about. Um, generally, a phase of that research involves doing the synthesis and interpreting with those who created, whether it was the digital storytelling or mm -hmm. the photos. Um, they are definitely a key part of that process and shifting the power to them is a, a big component of that. It's been really powerful for me to see in different types of work um, how much more you can get out of that process. Even if, you know, I think sometimes you put up some of the exhibits and, you know, it's not the exact you know, it's not a masterpiece of things, but the things that they're able to convey are so much more powerful than um, what can be done in other research methods, I find. But yes, making sure that people are part of that process. That's great. Thank you very much for that. That was wonderful. Great. Thank you. Thank you.